Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I'd just like to open with a word of prayer, if I could. Lord, thanks for the joy it is to be together here in your presence. Thanks for our church. I'm always mindful before an opportunity to speak of some of the, the challenging words. Peter says, if you speak, it should be as though you're speaking the words of God. James said, if you're smart, you won't teach because you're going to be held to a higher standard of application. And Paul said, I, I rejoice that when I speak, it's not with persuasion and wisdom. It's with a demonstration of the Spirit. So we ask, would you open our hearts to hear? Our ears to to perceive, and would you give us wills that would be responsive to you? Amen. Well, I started a new job this year that requires facilitating an all-day conference, and my trainer, Dave, had a bunch of humor that he had interspersed throughout his presentation. Melissa graciously agreed to be a guinea pig and to listen to some of my early efforts at, at learning. I got done with one of them. And she said, you know those jokes? Your timing's off. It's just, you're not funny. It's not working for you. <laughs> Gotta love spouses, right? They're honesty. So I had my, one of my early dry runs with my trainer. And uh, before I, I gave my, my first presentation, he said, well, how do you think you're doing? I said, well, I'm working pretty hard. And for some reason, I happened to think of Melissa's comment. I said, well, my wife said I'm not very funny, but you know, we'll see how it goes. So I went through my first 90-minute session, and I get done with the session. And you know, he's about to give me a 90-minute critique of my 90-minute session. And he kind of looks up from his, from his desk he's sitting at in his glasses. He goes, you know that comment your wife made when she said you're not funny? She's right, you're not. Take the humor out. <laughs> You know, this dagger in my heart, it reminded me of one of the early um, scenes from my favorite all-time movie, What About Bob? Bob is this slightly challenged person, Bill Murray's the character, and he's having his first meeting with his therapist, Dr. Marvin, and Dr. Marvin, early on, he says, tell me, are you married? And Bob quickly kind of shifts into this mode, he says, well, there's two kinds of people in the world, people that like Neil Diamond and people that don't. My wife liked Neil Diamond, to which Dr. Marvin kind of takes a step back. He goes, I see. So let me get this straight. Even though you're an almost completely paralyzed, multiphobic personality, your wife didn't leave you. You left her because she likes Neil Diamond, to which Bob kind of puts two and two together. And he, well, wait a second. Are you suggesting that maybe I didn't leave my wife because she liked Neil Diamond, but maybe she left me? To which he says, exactly. Bob says, ow, ow, oh, this pain of the, the reality of it. He says, but I, I finally have hope. You can, you can actually help me. Well, maybe for some of us, some of the, the daggers of this morning will be a little bit painful or a little touchy, but I hope that you'll receive it in a way of hoping that it will help us move forward in our lives. Speaking of counseling, I was speaking with a couple earlier this summer, and they were sharing with me how much they had been benefited in the last year going to some sessions at the Grace Counseling Center how it helped them in their relationship and some of their parenting. And I, in turn, was sharing with them, you know, how much I've been benefited over the last decade with my counselor that I've been seeing. In fact, I said he just came out with a book this summer called The Journey into the Divided Heart, the way that our defense mechanisms prevent us from experiencing healing. And I was a bit taken aback by the man's response. He said, wow, I'm shocked that you go to counseling too. You seem like you have it all together. 
So I thought, I just should lay the bar low. I don't have it together. I'm just like the rest of us, right? What are we all? We're on a journey. Many of us are here because we're trying to say, how do we create more congruency between what we say we believe, how we want to live and act, especially in our homes, and the way that we actually pull it off? For those of you who've been coming for a while to Grace, you know that one of our values is that we want to encourage devotions, time that we spend outside of church on our own trying to grow closer to God. For many of us, we found a habit of reading the Bible to be an important part of that process. For any of you for whom this is a reality, I'm sure you've at least at some point had an experience like I did a few months ago. You're just innocently reading along in whatever you've kind of got planned that you're on reading the Bible. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, you just get zapped with something. And you just sense that God is just saying, this one's for you, buddy. Pay attention to this. Well, I had one of those types of experiences a few months ago. It's actually going to be the, the basis for what I'm going to share at the, as we kind of build the, the setting. I'm going to share that at the end. I was sharing this with Doug, and I said, I just sense that maybe there's something in here um, for our church. And he agreed and said, why don't you plan to speak at the end of August, which is what brings us here today. I want to just say one other thing. You know, for those of us who've been coming around at least all summer, we, we did a book study, as you may recall, from Nehemiah. And maybe some of you are a little bit like me, where you were a little bit kind of like, but wait a second, we ended at chapter eight, but there's 13 chapters. You know, my kids refer to it as being a bit OCD. So if any of you are a little bit traumatized that we ended in the middle of the book, I'm going to kind of pull the book end for us today so you can leave today and you'll at least have a little less stress in your life because <laughs> things will make sense at church, right? That's always helpful. Well, we left off. Let me just give you an overview of what we're gonna, where we're going to go today. I'm going to kind of set the stage of where we left off. Remember, Nehemiah was brought to rebuild the wall, the safety around Jerusalem. It's 444 BC when he has this sabbatical. He was a cupbearer to the king. I won't repeat everything that we heard before. Um, then we're going to look at, but they make this, you're going to see that what we, where we left off, they make this huge promise to God, this big celebration ceremony they have. And we're going to take a little bit to understand, well, why would they have made that promise? That's a pretty big promise they made. I'm going to throw a little bit of the New Testament twist into it. And then I'm going to give you the zinger that I feel like God gave me that I've been wrestling with for a few months that hopefully will be of help to some of you. And then we'll apply it and we'll go home, have a great day, hopefully. So that's what we're up to today. Where we left off, and, and if you have, your, if you want to grab the Pew Bible, um, a lot of the verses will be in Nehemiah, not all of them, but that's on page 406. If you want to grab the Bible and, and read along when we get to those, let me just give a bit of the context where we left off. At the end of chapter eight, um, Ezra, who is a priest who actually went Early, remember the, the story is the children of Israel have rebelled against God. They're sent into exile. They're in Babylon. And then a group is allowed to come back and rebuild the temple. A long time later, Nehemiah's got his job as the cupbearer. You know, he, he tastes the wine and the food. And if he doesn't die, then the king says, okay, I can eat it. No one's poisoning me at this meal. And then he has this news of how horrible things are. He's really burdened. And God gives him favor. And he's able to take a sabbatical and go and rebuild the wall. They have this big... Um, convocation, which is where we last left off in chapter 8. As they read the Bible there, people are crying. There's a sense of conviction. And, but the real sense is this. How fortunate are we? Our ancestors completely screwed up. They messed up. We've been sent away. We're enslaved by the Babylonians. And now God's given us a fresh start. And now we can, we can be safe together. So that's kind of where we left off. We're going to read a few verses now in chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves to the law of God, all who have knowledge and understanding, enter into a curse and an oath to observe 
the commandments of the Lord. So they're kind of like feeling this yay, rah, rah. We're all excited for this new opportunity. And they're about to make this promise to God. Listen to what their oath is. We take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Kind of like a flat tax per person to come together. We obligate ourselves also to bring the first fruits of our ground. The first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord, as it's written in the law. And we're going to bring to the Lord the tithes from our ground. For it's the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns. And the Levites will bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. So just to give a little context, you've got 12 children of kind of Judah, Israel, I'm sorry, children of of Jacob, they become these tribes, and God says, I'm going to take one of them, Levi, the Levites, you're my servants, everyone else, you get to live life normal, you get to inherit land, but not my servants, the servants are going to survive, because you're all going to give a tithe, 10% of what you have, and if you're one of these Levites, when you get your money, if you will, even you have to tithe it to Aaron, to the priest, you kind of have the higher echelon priests, the kind of special clan of the Levites. Okay, moving on. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So what's going on in these verses here in this promise? The people are saying we're going to plan for and we're going to fund the overhead of the worship in the temple. We have a flat tax we're agreeing to. We're going to give 10%. And even the workers who got their 10%, the Levites, they too had to give a portion of it. Now we're going to jump to chapter 11. I'm going to skip a lot of 11 and 12 primarily because there's just a lot of names. Everyone that signed the document, all the leaders, are all their names are listed there. It's hard enough to pronounce them, let alone to take up the time to go through it. But look at chapter 11, just a few verses. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they said, hey, in order for this operation to work, we're going to need some more people living in town. Who wants to move to the big city? I guess it was before all the perks that we have living in the big city today. People wanted to live out in the country for some reason. But they said one out of 10 by random were kind of chosen and even some volunteered, for which everyone said, thanks for volunteering to go and live and work at the temple. For there was a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. So you don't just have now the Levites that are kind of there and the priests. You've got the gatekeepers. You've got the singers. It's like a bigger production than it used to be way back when. All right, let's look at chapter 12. Now it's the actual dedication of the wall. It's kind of the same day, I think, that was going on back in chapter 8. There's just a lot of drama going on in this one day. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, this is verse 27 of chapter 12, if you're trying to follow it in the Bibles. They sought the Levites to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. So you get this picture. I hope you can begin to sense it. This is a rocking like band they're, they're putting together to celebrate. And not only are all the religious guys coming, the Levites, you've got these singers that are saying, hey, can I get a job? I'd like to be a part of it. And so they move and they're in the suburbs, but they're part of the overhead to run the operation. Then it says he... Uh, Nehemiah says this, then I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into 
them the portions required by the law for the priest and for the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. See, God had just set it up in the initial time when they were in the wilderness. Here's how you do all the sacrifices. When people sin, you're going to have to go through this. You have all these rules that the Levites had to have. There were clans of people whose job was to carry different pieces of the moving you know, tent that would kind of go around throughout the, the Israel. But when David got to town, David was like, God, you're too awesome to just go through the rituals. Can't we just celebrate a little bit? Remember, he was a guy dancing around and his wife was mad because he didn't have enough clothes on one day when he was bringing the ark back. David said, I want to do even more than this. Let's bring in worship. So the precursors of like our kind of worship with symbols and, you know, they didn't have the electronics, but there was a sense of joy. The Psalms, a lot of those were David and Asaph. They were like the praise music of the Old Testament Jews. And he said, now we've got another layer of overhead we need to have, not just the priests. Let's get worship. Let's get the directors of the singers part of the deal. And we end up in chapter 12 with this passage. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart their tithe, which was for the sons of Aaron. So what's the recap thus far? They had this great celebration. Everyone was excited. They weren't, you know, like grudgingly, oh, I got to pay the tax to fund the church. Oh, you know, there's a sense of how awesome is this that God's giving us favor again? Let's, let's be a part of this. Now, the question that I think is fair to ask is, well, why would they do this? Why make all these vows? You know, one of the things I like to say whenever someone's thinking about getting married, there's this verse that says, look, it's no sin not to make a promise to God, but if you're going to make a promise to God, God says you better do it. So why would they have wanted to make all of these promises to God? Well, I think it'll be a little bit helpful just to get a, a picture of what, what kind of the deal was for the Old Testament Jewish people. Just going to look at a few excerpts from Deuteronomy. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 12. Moses, Deuteronomy is kind of written right before Moses is going to die at the end of all their 40 years of wandering, before they're going to begin to go and take possession of the promised land. So it's kind of like a recap. Second law is what Deuteronomy means. These are the statutes and the rules that you're to be careful to do. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and there you shall go, and there you shall bring your tithes. So we know now that, of course, it was Jerusalem that God said is going to be the capital. But back then, they, God just said, look, you're going to go there, and you're going to bring these tithes. What's a tithe? 10%. You shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite. You may not eat within your own towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place the Lord your God will choose. And take care that you don't neglect the Levite as long as he lives in your land. So what's the recap here? God's saying you're going to set aside 10%, take it where I'm going to tell you, and then celebrate, have a party. It wasn't just drudgery. It was I'm kind of like saving throughout the year the best of your crops. Go where I tell you and have in my presence joyful celebration. Your kids should grow up thinking it's awesome following God. We get a paid vacation. And we get to have whatever you want. Ice cream and whatever was good to eat back then type of thing. Now I was trying to think how could this, 
what would this look like in our, in our culture? This is the best I can think of. For the last 20 years, almost every year, my family has taken a vacation to a Christian family camp. It's called Camp of the Woods. My kids tell me it's their favorite place. What do we do at Camp of the Woods? We're with friends. We eat great food. It's Christ-centered. There's a chapel. There's a focus on God. But it's this kind of sense of community. Who knew I could have taken my tithe to fund that the last two decades? If only I'd figured that part of it out, right? Isn't that what it said? Take the tithe and do that? I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying maybe. Okay. Now, think about this. Remember Jesus? He's 12 years old. He goes to the temple on one of these kind of pilgrimages with this group of people. It's so many people going together that two days on the way home, they're finally going, hey, Jesus hasn't been sleeping in our tent. Where is he? I don't know. Oh, he's back in Jerusalem. That was the culture that God had set up. You take this annual pilgrimage and it's a party. It's a celebration, but it's all focused on God and, and finding where he is in the midst of it. Now it gets better. Check this out. Chapter 14, verse 22. You shall tithe of all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, you shall eat the tithe. And if it's too far to carry all that with you, turn it into cash, go to the place the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. One of my favorite verses coming up. Oxen and sheep, steak and lamb, right there. You don't have to be a vegetarian to love God, right? Or wine. <laughs> don't keep laughing. You're not gonna like this one maybe. Or wine or strong drink. Whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Is this really in the Bible? Set aside 10%, turn it to cash, and get whatever you want to drink or eat in my presence. But he keeps saying over and over again one thing. Don't neglect the Levite, don't neglect the spiritual guides, those who are teaching you the principles to live. All right, one more twist to the Old Testament, then we're going to move on. At the end, this is chapter 14. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So two out of three years, you go and you kind of maybe have a little bit of a self-indulgent party in God's presence, but at least one of the three, it stays local and it funds the operation of the religious people and it blesses those who are needy around you. What a great concept. And when you do that, it says God is gonna bless you. When you put first things first in his Agenda, you'll be blessed. This is from chapter 26. When you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, this is the one that we just read about, then, then when you've done it right, you've removed from your own house the sacred tithe. This is what you say to God. God, I've removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I've given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandment that you've commanded me. I have not sinned. Look, look down from your habitation, look down from heaven, and bless your people Israel and the ground that you've given us as you swore to our fathers. Take the tithe where God says. Every third year, make sure you fund the local people. 
There should be abundance so that there's no one needy, everyone's satisfied. Once you've gotten it right and you've honored God that way, that's the time to go, now bless my business, God. Bless me. I've been faithful. Will you bless me? Now, just a slight little side note. What did, what did the Levites and the priests do? There's a whole bunch of little vignettes spread around, and it wasn't an overly exciting job. Of course, they had to oversee the worship, the utensils, you know, the animal sacrifices. I'm sure glad that, you know, I don't do well with blood. I'm glad it wasn't my job back then. They also settled disputes. They taught scriptures. You know, one of my favorite verses is Ezra 7.10. Ezra's the guy that came back decades before Nehemiah built the temple back up after Babylon, and here's what he says in Ezra 7. This is what it says about him. Ezra Hmm, can't remember the next part of it. Ezra committed, he purposed in his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and then to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. He's like, I was committed first to learning it, then to living it, and then to helping other people learn how to apply it in their own lives. But they also were like the infectious disease inspectors. They would decide if someone's sores were clean or unclean. Ugh. They had another job. It was to uh, be the building inspectors for mildew or mold, whether to burn down the tent or not type of situation. That was their job. Not overly self-actualizing in my opinion. And of course, they didn't have any land. They just had to live off of the generosity or the faithfulness of God's followers. Talk about God's capitalistic incentive plan. The most religious people of all are praying, A, that God blesses, there won't be a famine, and B, that people are godly and want to give, right? So I mean, that's a pretty good incentive plan, I think, that they would be getting 10% of what everybody else does. Now, I want to transition in a minute. Um, at Leadership Summit this year, they had a great comedian, Michael Jr. He is just hilarious, and he's a strong Christian. And, um, you know, I told you I'm kind of humor challenged, so he actually taught me a lot about humor. He said, this is what you got to do. You got to have a setup that gets people going down one way, and then right when they're not expecting it, you do a sharp right turn, and that's what's funny. And so I was like, great, that was one of my takeaways from the summit. You know, you go figure, right? <laughs> but he was talking about, he gave this phenomenal story of a giving thing he did that I don't have time, but if you can Google that one, it's worth watching. It's probably a five-minute story. It's amazing. But he said this, he said, you know, if people talk about tithes and offerings, he goes, they get all excited about tithes. He goes, look, what's a tithe? It's just not robbing. Why? Hey, I didn't rob you today. How about that? Well, what does that mean? It's not robbing. It comes out of the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi is the last of the prophets in the Old Testament. They say it was written between 435 and 425 BC. Remember the wall celebration that we left off at was 444. And here's what he says. This is God speaking through Malachi to his people. And God says this, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, what's God saying here? Bring the storehouse. I want my storehouse is abundant that people know God is here. And if you have a need, come and we will take care of you. But it's also the only place in the Bible that God actually says, test me. Remember, Jesus is tempted by Satan and he says, you know, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. But here God says, I dare you. Begin to set aside my portion and see whether or not I don't show up 
on your behalf. I was doing some different research. I came across an interesting statistic from the Mormon church. I found out that they mandated a tithe that be given. They also force people to show them their tax returns to make sure they're not cheating when they tell that they tithe, you know? Just saying, that's what they do. I'm not saying we should do it. I'm just saying that's what they do. Now, I need to pause just for a minute. I hope you're with me. There's some of you that are advanced, I know, and you've been sitting here. I, I don't see many people across, but maybe in your own heart, you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all Old Testament. We're not Old Testament. Thank God. We're New Testament, right? We don't have to follow all those rules. God's, God's freed us from that. And I will agree, yeah, it's different, but I'm not so sure by the time I'm done with what I'm about to say, it's a better different if you're hoping to get off on the easy street. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus said this, you know, some people will say to me, you know, Jesus never mentioned tithing in the New Testament. Well, listen to this. He says at one point, woe to you Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's talking to the Pharisees. He doesn't say you shouldn't tithe. I mean, I'm not that uptight about whether we're getting every 10th tomato that comes out of the little garden Melissa hasn't given it. But he's saying, look, it wasn't wrong that you tied, but you just missed the boat. If, if there's more important things than if you're doing everything meticulously right with the money. It's the hardest love of God that matters. But Jesus actually had a lot to say about attitude in giving. Remember from, the, from Matthew chapter 6, right before the Lord's Prayer, he says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they can get praise from others. I tell you, they've already received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So in addition to the expectation that the Jewish people would keep tithing, Jesus seems to think that in addition to the tithe, they'd also be giving to the needy. Just don't do it so other people can think you're some special person. How about this? He has a guy that comes up to him in Matthew 19 and says, I, I want to know what do I need to do to get to heaven? He goes, follow the commands. I've done everything. And Jesus looks at him and says, if you really want to be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That sounds a lot worse than just saying, here's 10%. I can have fun with the rest of my money. But I think the best picture from Jesus, he's sitting one day watching people give. And he says to his disciples, come and see what I just saw. This is from Mark 12. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said, truly I say, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What that tells me is that maybe I am a regular tither, but given the level of abundance in my life, I think he just, oh, all right, you did your duty. That's not impressive to me. What's impressive to God is when our giving evidence is trust in him. How about John the Baptist? You remember, he was the guy out there preaching fire and brimstone. You evil people, you know, repent. They all got baptized. And, and people would say, what do I need to do? He said, well, it's really simple. If you got two coats, give to somebody with none. If you have food, do the same. 
two coats. How about if you have 20 coats? Some of us have two cars or two houses. I mean, let's, let's be honest. The, the expectation in the New Testament is not necessarily easier than this 10% burden was in the Old Testament. Now, there, I know some of you here that are even you know, more advanced, and you go, yeah, 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 but we, we know that we don't have to follow the Old Testament because that's what we are told. In Acts chapter 15, there was this big council, and Paul was this apostle to the Gentiles, and, and what the big question was is, well, when these people who aren't Jewish come to faith in Jesus, do they need to get circumcised? Do they got to follow the law? And they made a very clear statement, no, you don't. You're not under the law. In fact, the only thing that they were told is you can't drink blood. Go figure that one out. When's the last time you had a, had a juice of blood? Not a big temptation for me. But they also said, don't have any sexual sin. Be perfect in your sexuality. That certainly relates to today. And then Paul writes in Galatians 2 about his time when he went to that council. And he says, the only thing they said to me is that don't forget the needy. The very thing that he said he was very willing to do. All right. We're getting close to the punchline that is the zinger. The zinger's back in Nehemiah 13, if you're still on page 406 or 407, somewhere in there. But before I get to that, I just want to take another pause because it wouldn't surprise me if some of you are beginning to feel a little resistance because you've been down this road before, haven't you? This has been a very misused principle in the church. You know, I was golfing with someone this winter and it was so sad to hear what he said. He said, you know, I hate going to my son's church. Every single time I go, it's just give me more of your money. You're evil because you're selfish. Give more money. Give, give, give. And he's turned his whole heart off from God because whenever he happens to show up, it's the unlucky day. Now, maybe some of you here, you haven't been around in a while. You know, first time back in a year, boom, here it is, a money kind of talk. I apologize for that. Maybe God's saying something to you, maybe he's not, I don't know. But it's actually a serious issue. I remember as a child, I used to spend my summers on my grandparents' farm from the time I was 9 to 16. I had a friend who was a couple years older than me. I think I was 12 at this time. He's 14. He had a, a calf that he had raised. He was feeding it. He was about to take it to market at the end of August. And he was like, I think it was going to maybe be five or $600 he was expecting to make off of this steer he was going to sell. Grandpa went to a little church in the country and the pastor decided it was his job to put it heavy on my friend, uh, Tom. He said, you know, Tom, if you really want to start your financial career right, you should demonstrate to God that you love him with all your heart and you should dedicate 100% of this first sale that you have to God. Now, I know that every week they used to put up in that church where the offering was below budget. I know this guy was hurting for money, and it just, it, it just felt so bad to me. I felt like you just want all that money in your pocket, Mr. Pastor. Why can't you at least start him off with training wheels with 10%? He wanted to save up for a car, and now it's like, do I love God or don't I? I need to decide whether to give all of it away or not. It wouldn't surprise me if some form or fashion Many of you in this auditorium, maybe you've even been to a church in the past where you just, you just know it smelled. It just was manipulative. That's not the heart of God, and it's certainly not the heart of what I'm trying to cover today. Now, one thing I will say is this. I'm not on staff, so what I'm about to say, it's not affecting my livelihood at all. I obviously have a bit of a bias because I'm one of the leaders here, but it's hard sometimes, I think, for our pastors to be to just be teaching about this because they don't want it to feel that manipulation that so many of us have experienced in our lives. Okay, now we're gonna get to the zinger, so get ready. This is chapter 13. What happens is when Nehemiah comes to build the wall, he gets a sabbatical to go and build the wall. So after the big celebration, he goes back to work. He goes back to Babylon. 
Chapter 13 is actually 12 years later. Now, we don't get any information in the scriptures as to what prompts his, his sabbatical number two to go back and check on things, whether he got a bad report or not. We just find out what he finds when he gets there. And this is a verse that kind of just jumped out at me. He gets back, and this is chapter 13, verse 10. I found out that the portions for the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work fled back to their old lives. Hmm. The world doesn't end when we don't fund the work of God, but it changes. They had this sense 12 years before, how lucky are we? We're slaves and God's given the king of Babylon favor to bless us and to come back and to build the temple and to, and to have safety with the walls. God, we promise we're all in. We're going to support the work. We want it to be like it was with David, with rock and worship and with an amazing ministry to everybody. But over this period of 10 or 12 years, things have dissipated. Nehemiah obviously is a little PO'd, right? I mean, all the work I went through, all the risk I took, I almost got beheaded when I first spoke up for you knuckleheads to come and do this whole thing. I come back and you just let it go away. He says, I confronted the officials. I said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the wine of the oil into the storehouses. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. The funding dried up. The resources to fund the Levites and the singers weren't there, so they just, they got their old jobs back and, and things suffered. Why has the house of God been forsaken? Now, gotta give you the context, what was going on when I read this. You know, it was late April, early May. Our budget at our church goes from June 1st to May 31st. Last year, our budget was about 2.4 million, about a couple hundred thousand a month. We were significantly under budget at the time. We ended up coming in about 300,000 less than budgeted last year. We were in the midst of trying to discern what should the budget be to, to fund the ministry this year, you know, June 1st, 17 till May of 18. We ended up feeling like, you know, we probably should cut it back. We cut it back $400,000 to just under $2 million a year. But as I read this, it just kind of struck me like, is this really what God wants for our church that we, that we pair back, you know? Flat has moved on and we haven't been able to replace that rock. Many of us were so blessed by that marriage seminar he did and his involvement. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of a mentoring pastor in our presence at all times? So the question that I've been asking and that I feel God wants in a gentle way, maybe, or maybe not so gentle for some, is to ask ourselves, have we been neglecting God's house? Have we been misstewarding his resources. What happens when the expected gifts don't show up? People get laid off and people get other jobs. It's not that the world ends. It's that it's different. I'd like to show you this slide. It's the summary of the giving units at Grace last fiscal year. Almost a thousand different family units give to Grace. If you look at that bottom arrow there, that's about 10%, 104 people gave 5,000 or more to Grace in the last fiscal year. You do another decile, that next tranche, another 100 gave more than 2,500 a year. And then 80% gave less than 2,500 a year. 
I looked up that the median family income in Wayne County is 48,000 statewide, it's 64. I think we could safely argue since some demographic of our congregation lives in Gross Point, it's probably a little higher for us than the median in Wayne County. At best, 20% of our congregation is giving 2,500 a year. Let's face it, you can hardly live on 25,000, so we gotta believe that our household income is probably closer to the 50 at a base level. I don't believe that God mandates that we give 10% to the local church. I think that God says, a portion of what I've given you is mine. Look, if Miguel Cabrera came to Christ or started coming to our church, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, he makes 28 million a year. If he tithed 2.8 million, it'd be more than double our budget. If I made that kind of dough, I don't know that I would necessarily feel compelled to give it here. All 2.8 million. I might, because I'm on, you know, I have a role here where I might be inclined to do that, but I don't think that's necessarily true for everybody that they have to do that. But one thing's for sure God sees what we give. And Jesus said, I'm not impressed with any one of those tithers that gave a lot of money because they just gave out of their abundance. It doesn't impress God when we do that. What I wonder is this imagine what our ministry at Grace might look like. If the heart that the Jewish people had at that celebration, remember that line that was underlined in that one passage? For Judah was rejoicing over the ability to fund the Levites and to get back to the day where the worshipers and the singers were part of the overhead of the ministry. Now, I would say this, that as churches go, Grace, I think, is actually doing more than a typical church to actually impact those who are in need. You know, we have a counseling center. The couple I was talking to are a part of that, not because they have Blue Cross insurance or can afford to spend 100 bucks an hour, but because no matter who wants help, we make sure that it gets covered for people to go to Grace Counseling Center to understand how to work on their marriage better, how to work on their parenting skills. We have been a part of partnering with Covenant so that anyone in our church and community that wants and needs medical or dental care, they can come and they can be receiving it for free. You know, the Eagle Sports Club that started 12 years ago, providing athletics, you could say, well, that's not a need. It's maybe not a need, but it, I tell you what, we need to do something to be, besides just sitting and playing Xbox for everybody, that we felt there was a need for that to, to do. And now in the recent years, soar, the impact that that's having, and of course, what could be happening going forward, as, as Doug's been sharing for many times. Look, it's not like our church is just completely self-absorbed and spending all the money on ourselves. There's an outreach mindset for people who do feel led to give to grace. I just want to give a quick, here's how I personally look at it. I feel God's calling me to tithe to grace, but I don't think he's impressed at all with that. I think he's calling me to give to those who are less fortunate, to strategically invest in ministries as well. Some of us who have surplus, maybe we should consider the reverse tithe where you live on 10 and give 90% away. Some of us probably need to think about when do we stop accumulating because we, we truthfully have enough savings and maybe 100% should go forth to the kingdom. What I think the point is, is that God wants each of us to be responsive to how he's leading us. And I just gotta tell you, when I look at that, that you don't have to put it back up, that stat, I, just, I think that we're probably collectively missing it when 80% are giving less than 2,500 a year. Now, I wanna wrap up by just looking at four potential places we could find ourselves in it, just sharing a couple comments about it, and then I'll, I'll end with kind of the ideal. I think there's a group of us here that I would call the tippers. 
We're not necessarily fully vested in the work here, but we know we should probably give something to show up. I mean, it's pretty good service. You know, our kids, if we have kids, yeah, kids get pretty good exposure, training. If nothing else, it's a nice hour and a half break from having to parent just to be at church, right? We, some of us are tipping. And I think for some of us, it might be an interesting adventure to try tithing for a season and see what God might do. I'm not saying you gotta give it to grace. And I know there are people who are not, who give on this list, who give to lots of other ministries. This isn't a heavy, I'm not trying to twist an arm. I want to invite you into an adventure that to me could have huge impact down the road. So maybe some tippers need to consider tithing. But I think there's also some tithers here and you might be a little bit like me as I really reflected on what God wanted me to learn. This is what I felt like. I think I like checking boxes. I like closure. I'm a little OCD. It's very easy for me to do my little 10% on my text to give and be kind of like, all right, now I got 90% to do what I want. I have a feeling that there's a lot more promptings that God wants me to tune into of how to bless people than I usually experience. And I got to tell you, that really is the most exciting way to live. If any of you have experienced where you've just felt a leading to do something for somebody or to send some money strategically somewhere, and then you've seen the result of it, that, that is fun. Sometimes just giving to church or giving to a budget is not fun. When you get those leadings from God, I guarantee you that's fun. Some of us who've been dutifully tithing need to realize that that was just the baseline back in the Old Testament. God expects us to be giving to the needy as well. There might be some that fit the theatrical side where you love to give, especially when people know you like your name on things. You like to be seen as the, as the patron donor of different things. And I think there's a real learn. I mean, Jesus talked a lot more about this than he did about the amount. Don't do your religious activities to be seen. Do it in secret. Trust that you have a God who sees what no one else does and that by your faithfulness in that, he will bless you. Then we've got this group I call the PB group. Previously burned. And as I prayed, I just got a sense that there's a lot more of you here than you might have thought when you walked in. I do a lot of elder interviews with people that have decided to join our church. It's one of the greatest joys that I have. I can't tell you how many times someone says, you know, a few years ago, I really had a horrible experience in church. I didn't think I'd ever come back. I'm so sick of feeling manipulated. Is it possible that for some of us, if we're honest, we've got a little bitterness, we've got a little hardness of heart, a little defense mechanism-ish, like the book I've been going through. Maybe some of us are missing out on a whole opportunity God wants for us because we've shut down that part of our heart and we said, I'm not going there. I'm going to tip. Thank you very much. I feel quite content tipping. I'll give in other ways. If that's you, I think there's an invitation today for some people to just come up and say, God, would you just, will you give me a fresh start of the exciting adventure of participating with you? Let me just end by talking about the ideal. I had an opportunity to hear Henry Blackaby speak a number of years ago. He wrote this powerful book called Knowing and Experiencing God, which if you've never done that Bible study, it's 13 weeks long. It'll revolutionize your ability to hear God's voice and to be in an intimate relationship with him. But at his talk he was giving, it was about giving. And he gave this illustration that I never thought of before. He said, what happened?
happened to Jesus' body when he died? Most of us probably know Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a member of the ruling council. He went before Pilate and he said, hey, can I take the body and put it in a tomb? You see, he was so rich, he had gotten a nice tomb and said, when I die, this is where I'm going. He'd already prepared for his funeral. Not many people back then had the resources to do that. Obviously, he didn't know Jesus was going to die. Nobody did. Even his closest disciples couldn't figure out when the world was going on with their Messiah dying. That's crazy. But something happened in his spirit. And he saw what was happening to Jesus. And he said, I have a tomb. Maybe I could be the one. The house. The body of Jesus. And for the rest of history, we know about it. And what Henry Blackney was saying is, do you get, do you get it? Some people have surplus, not to just hoard it and to say, I'm going to give all my grandkids all the inheritance. Surplus is meant to bless. He goes, how important is it for people with resources to be hearing God's voice so you can put it into play? There's a passage I didn't have time to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And he says, this is what it's like. Some people who follow God are in desperate need and they're saying, God, help me, have mercy. I'm like losing my house. I need a job. I don't have the ability to, to educate. Help, help. If we who have surplus hear that and we respond, what happens? They get their need met. They go praise God. So God's glorified. And who do you think they're going to want to be praying most intently for the rest of their lives? But the one who in the midst of their need responded to God's prompting. He's like, this is it's this incredible orchestra God wants. And he said, the sad thing is so few of us experience it. So, this isn't a heavy about giving, but it's a heavy about maybe we are neglecting to do what God's calling us to. Doug's been saying over and over again for years, what is discipleship? It's hearing and obeying. I don't know what God's calling you to. There are some people, whatever you're giving, God's so much happier with what you're doing in a small amount than my tipping from my largesse. My 10% doesn't make God happy at all, I don't think. But it's his, and I want to set it aside, and I want his continued blessing in my life. Who knows the stories that God might want to be written in our midst if we get this? Let's stand, let's end in prayer. We have a group of people that meet before service to pray, and at the end of it, John Carter, one of the elders, was leading it, and these are some of the words that, that people sense God was saying that if this applies to you, you may want to consider coming forward for prayer. We have a whole team of people that come every week to be available to pray. Forgiveness, generosity, healing, peace, cancer. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that we're a part of a church where we can really feel good that the resources that we give are actually not just being manipulated out to give a paycheck to the pastor who's twisting the arms, but it's, it's, it's an infusion of love and of kingdom work throughout our community. Thanks, Lord, that you've got, we've got directors of singers like John that can invest his life in having our worship experience be awesome like it was with David and Solomon. Thinks that we have people like Lakeisha who can say, I'm going to commit my life to trying to have a kids program that can teach children from a young age. We've got Gerald who's overseeing discipleship and Lily with the kids. Thank you for our workers. And I pray that you would open up 
the coffers of your kingdom and that we would have abundance, Lord, that we continue to have food to give through my father's business and that we continue to have an impact in sore and the things in our community. But mostly, God, I ask that you begin to quicken us. Would each one here have something this week that we think that's the spirit saying, help this person in a small, quiet way, left hand, not knowing what the right hand's doing, that we could have experience of this joy that you want us to have, the joy of being a part of your kingdom at work. Lord, if there's any previously burned people that they, they just sense there's a bitterness, there's a, there's a need to let go of what was manipulative and to say, God, what do you have for me today going forward? I pray a blessing on our staff. Thank you for the way that they serve us. Thanks for Doug's leadership. And Lord, I pray a blessing on our families as we start this, this new launch into the fall to make available a service on Saturdays. We pray that hundreds of people who don't normally come to church would be drawn to say, let me just put my faith on the front burner of my life. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you that we don't give out of this burden of the Old Testament rules, but that it's an inviting into a relationship. In Jesus' name.